Yeah, I mean, denying intuitions, uh, like moral intuitions, if you do that, then you basically get rid of one of the, like currently Dustin Crummett is one philosopher who has argued like we have moral knowledge and moral knowledge or moral experience is an argument in favor of God. If you, if you deny that our intuitions track moral knowledge, then that's it you have lost and one important, one very important argument. Remember, Dustin Crummett's argument is not William Lane Craig's argument about objective uh, morality. Uh, Dustin Crummett's argument uh, is much more, like the claim itself is much more modest. It, it's, it's talking about moral knowledge. It's not talking about objective morality. You know, it, it's just talking about moral experience and yeah. And I was also like uh, talking about like David Schmidt's uh, analysis of justice, and he talks about like reciprocity. Do you mean Joe Joe Schmidt? Joe Schmidt? No, David Schmidt's. Oh, He's okay, I'm sorry. A different okay. philosopher. Uh, Joe Joe is like in the department of like philosophy of religion and specifically in in the models of God. I, I think I misheard you the first time. I that's all. I just misheard you. Okay, yeah. David Schmidt's is a a. a philosopher who has uh who is in the department of political philosophy and yeah i think in normative ethics so he talked about like there are four elements in justice ju reciprocity equality uh need and and desert so again these are like pretty self-explanatory words I suppose, you know, these are pretty... Now, he, of course, gives, like, a deep exposition of these. Like, he explains he explains them deeply. By the way, exposition means explanation, right? Or, like, elaboration, right? Yeah, yeah, sorry. I mean, I'm not an English native English speaker, so, like, I heard exposition one time, and it... That's that's okay. I don't... I, don't, I mean, your English is much better than the, uh, my Hindi, for example, so... Okay, it's it's cool. It's cool, you know. Uh, uh, so I should mention, by the way, like the meeting is going to end in like three minutes. I don't know why is that. Like, perhaps like, it's because uh, you're not using um Zoom Pro. Yeah. So we're just gonna. Why don't we stop the recording? Yeah. And then and then do another meeting. Yeah. And then let me rip it on OBS. So let's stop. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so like when I think about like annihilation, like the whole view, like Transfigure talked with you about how it's not really about justice, retributive justice or, or like that, I think. I think he said it's more about grace right like god just takes away uh, god just takes away grace from you like the the grace that he is offering right and personally i think why does he take it away like taking it away still sounds to me like he is 
punishing you, right? I think if God takes it away, it sounds like punishment, or it also or it sounds unloving, or it sounds like God is just not moral in the way that we think of morality. Yeah. Um, And if you if you are the one who unilaterally makes that decision, the question is whether that can ever be a fully informed decision. Even even if so. Would Sorry. God ever allow you to make it a, a, an uninformed decision um, that has eternal consequences like that? Arguably, if God is good and just and loving and moral, then he will not. So again, it uh, leads strongly away from the conclusion that anyone will be annihilated. Yeah, I mean, there's another problem, though. Like, even if it is an informed decision, like, like have you seen the movie Good Place? Like, sorry, the show, Good Place, The Good Place. You have not. I I have, actually. Um, I meant to say a fully informed decision, which is to say a decision where you understand the full implications of what you're choosing. But, you know, and, and, and you understand the full implications of what you're choosing, and you have enough information um, to make the best decision for you, given that you understand the decision's full implications. But the thing is, can it ever be in someone's best interests not to exist? There's kind of just an intrinsically <coughs> hard problem there where it's yeah, like, I mean, existence the, is good, but for no one kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, the thing is like, the whole thing with dying permanently, what, like, of course, we talked about like how it is unloving, unjust, and... Uh, uh, not compassionate. It is also very like if if we are trying to, you know, think about why we are here, why we exist, you know, and uh, think about happiness. Like generally, people who want to die, they are in a great pain, great sadness, right? So, like, a happy person is choosing to, like, die. That just seems really strange to me. But, of course, there have been, like, philosophers who were who were apparently happy. And, like, one, one, one philosopher was, like, he, he, he killed himself, basically. His name is, like, Philip. He, he was a German uh, philosopher. His name is uh, Philip Meinlander. And... Uh, his view was like if you allow annihilationism even as not as a punishment but as like a choice free choice right can god do that to himself like uh, according to like philip meinlander the answer is actually yes and that's what god did like you know his his view was like so pessimistic he he was a philosopher of pessimism like in, in the uh, i suppose in the field in the field or or i suppose in a kind of paradigm of pessimism you know philosophical pessimism where the view is that non-existence is preferable to existence and uh, so his view was that god wanted to kill himself but he could not so what he did was he broke himself up 
destroyed himself, continuously tried to destroy himself. And uh, God was like this singularity. And since he was like, he wanted to like, God wanted to like, in, in his view, God wanted to like kill himself. So he broke himself down in smaller parts. So it was like an explosion and, you know, a kind of an expansion. And like, according to his view, we are literally living in the corpse of God, you know. So it's a pretty depressing horrifying view <laughs> to be honest with you like the the thing with <clears throat> annihilationism is like how it is it, it annihilationism is very different from eternal conscious torture you know uh the thing with annihilationism that bothers me is that look if you're allowing human beings to be tortured to be sorry to be killed by free choice, even if it is not for justice, then like why not allow that same choice to God? Like, can he not kill himself or something like that? I mean, if he can't, why does he allow human beings to just die? Yeah, I, I think that um, most annihilationists would answer that God is a sort of logically necessary being, and as such, he can't not exist. <laughs> Now, regarding whether God would ever allow his image bearers to make that free choice, I think for most annihilationists, the question simply doesn't come up. And the reason why is that most annihilationists understand annihilation um, um, in their theological picture as a kind of um, penalty or punishment. They do see it as retributive justice. Um, and that was why in my argument, I was actually trying to show the difficulties of, of, of affirming annihilationism from a standpoint of uh, retributive justice. Uh, now, if there were an annihilationist who was open-minded enough to entertain the possibility that annihilation was simply the free decision which God allows his own creatures to make um, uh, after they have paid the last penny, so to speak, after they have already suffered all the punishment that is due their sins, um, I um, think that still most people haven't actually raised that question, and it just raises question of whether raises questions of whether we can ever, in good conscience, allow people to end their own lives. Um, because in, as a general rule, you cannot be more moral than your God. If your God allows you to take your own life, if that's your free choice, then there's you know most uh, people who believe that will probably come to the conclusion that euthanasia um, and uh, or suicide by other means um, is a morally permissible choice um, for people who uh, just in the case where someone uh, of sound mind, whatever that is, uh, decides that it's what they want to do. Um, again, that's not a conclusion that most um, uh, Christians um, um, are uh, sympathetic to, in including myself. Um, but um, I think that if someone believed that God himself allows us this choice, that that we should not prevent people who have really considered um, uh, suicide from all angles from a, with a sound mind, um, uh, we should not stop them from committing it. Again, that's not my own position. I don't think we should hold that position, um, even if the person is of whatever we consider sound mind, um, because ultimately it's still not sound mind. There's There's 
there's no sane perspective from which one can elect that choice, in my opinion. And even someone who appears um, to be sane and and not depressed, um, I would submit, is still, um, you know, in bondage to a kind of um, to a kind of ignorance, and and perhaps also to a certain kind of subclinical or hard to detect uh, depression. Um, I mean, if if it is, um, if it is like if the person is of sound mind and he he has the choice to like kill himself, why does God not have that choice? Like, if he's absolutely necessary, like, if that if the choice, okay, you have the choice. People have the choice to eat shards of glass rather than a delicious food, right? If that choice of annihilating yourself is a bad kind of choice right the thing that is a bad thing and i think even from like a utilitarian perspective i mean i was a utilitarian like a few days ago now i'm like a contractualist you know so even in utilitarian perspective like the fact that someone is dying that means that that uh, that that means that you have reduced happiness you know uh, considering that there is heaven and all that stuff. So if, if it is like, if, if the choice is a bad thing, if giving the choice is a bad thing, right? Like remember God does not have that choice. If giving the choice is a bad thing, then God will not give it to the people. But if giving the choice is a good thing, then God should have the choice to do it himself. Right. Yeah, and 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 I think that that consideration may apply if we were to suppose that God's existence were somehow not necessary, that He could not exist, at least if He wanted to. However, um, most theists, including myself, yeah, yeah. Um, do do believe that His existence is logically necessary, and so He can't even choose to not exist, even if He wanted to, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean that's the thing, right? Like, so, so like death is like a good choice but god does not have that choice that seems like a very strange it, it, it would be a strange conclusion um uh, among I, among many others probably not yeah. probably not even the 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 strangest one you know personally i i don't i don't like um i don't like the um the move in sort of contemporary ethics toward um accepting um, a, a euthanasia and suicide as as morally permissible under certain conditions i um i i, I think that in the, in those situations we are playing god um it, because of course sometimes um uh the suffering that you know one experiences uh uh you know at the end of life is you know extremely severe um, still, though, it's hard to to know to 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 be certain um, uh, that one has found um, the the utmost tolerable limit of suffering. You know, you can always question whether um, a person should have held out a little longer or held out in conditions that were um, uh, as terrible as they were, because maybe that still wasn't the limit. You know, it's it's if you decide that no, this is this is the limit or this is the point where it is just uh, for me to um uh not exist for anymore or 
this is the point where it's morally permissible for me not to exist anymore. That's kind of like playing God, you know? And then I, I think that that's why part of why so many theists are uncomfortable with the, um, the suggestion that, that uh, suicide uh, could ever be uh, morally uh, uh, allowable. Yeah, that's the thing, right? I mean, I mean, some theists can reply that suicide, it's not like the real, real suicide, you know? I mean, like some theists can say that technically the suicide is more like the suffering here is just too much. Suffering in this world, like perhaps someone is suffering from like a terminal horrific kind of cancer. And the doctors have said, like, they have given up, right? And the person is, like, seriously, like, seriously dying. In that case, if the, the person is not, like, begging God to, like, actually annihilate him, he's more like, accept me to a, a better place you know accept me to like please help me and stuff like that i mean like, right. accept me. and then they would they would throw themselves on the mercy of god to try and understand why they did what what is ordinarily a sin and i don't think it's too much of a stretch to imagine that god would be somewhat understanding yeah. um uh even if it is even if it is a sin um, you can you can let your imagination to go uh, to dark places. Like for example, you can imagine uh, some. You can imagine fighting uh, on a field of battle where the enemy is completely ruthless and uh, they will not um, take you captive. They will torture you. Um, uh, and and, and um, you know you, you might have a wounded comrade, and um, you don't want to let them fall into the hands of the enemy, but you're not strong enough to carry them away and, and make your own escape. And so um, uh, the the wounded comrade, um, if he were to commit suicide, that would be um, sinful from the standpoint of his own uh, Christian moral beliefs, let's imagine. Let's imagine your wounded comrade is like, a, he's a Christian pastor, so he would never commit suicide on his own. But you know that if you do it, then then it won't have been his fault, but it will still have been compassion. So you shoot your wounded comrade in the head so he won't fall into the hands of the enemy, so you can make your own escape, and so it won't have been his fault. You can imagine a situation like that, which yeah. um, I imagine that that probably, you know, you would have to answer for that because there's 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 a way that that I imagine that um divine justice is not really consequentialist which i could get more into later um however um what i'll say is that you know the suicide in in terms of annihilationism um presents an interest an interesting corner case at least where we understand annihilationism as a form of retributive punishment um, because um if we imagine that suicide is wrong on the annihilationist picture um, and somebody commits suicide, and we imagine, as most annihilationists do, that God resurrects even the unrighteous dead, even those who commit the sin of suicide. It's like, what is God resurrecting the suicide victim for? Um, because um, he's resurrecting the suicide in order to, um, A, give the suicide what he already wanted, and B, to return him to the condition that he was already in or would have been in 
had he not sustained him in being or resurrected him. So there's very weird corner cases that come up where we understand uh, suicide as some kind of uh, moral sin and, and annihilation as a form of retributive justice. Um, I'm not sure an, all annihilationists have thought about that. Um, but um, yeah, I just wanted I mean, to mention that as kind of a side note. I mean, it's so weird, right? Like uh, some dude who is like depressed who killed himself and God raises him again. <laughs> and then he's still depressed. And God is like, all right, I'll kill you myself then. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, no, it's, 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 it reminds me a little bit of... Um, uh, I had a friend in school uh, when I was a little kid and he told me about how one time his dad who had a weird sense of humor um, found my friend asleep he was um, my my friend was I think what happened was my friend was sleeping on the couch but it was nighttime so he should have been sleeping on his bed and so my friend's dad woke him up from the couch and said hey wake up it's time to go to sleep and that just sounded funny and there's there's kind of a thing going on there with with annihilationism um uh where yeah. if we imagine that it's 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 this picture where um the unrighteous die and then they're in a state of soul sleep there's no conscious intermediate state but they die and they're in a state of soul sleep and then they're resurrected again um in order to be punished it's kind of like god looking at history's most evil men and saying <laughs> Okay, what's going on with them? They're there's they're they're um they're in the sleep of death. That won't ever do. Um that's completely wrong. Here, let me let me let me wake them up so they can go to sleep. There, that'll show them. It's like it's very redundant and strange and, and I mean weird. it's Again, also like in yeah. some sense as you like put it earlier, right? Like a petty thief gets like killed and then also Hitler is also killed. And I mean, it's 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 also sounds like, in in some sense, it also sounds really disturbing too. Like right, like so. Remember, any any crime committed against a being with infinite dignity, goodness, virtue, status is like an infinite crime or something. So like, as soon as someone like just commits a crime, like you know, someone just saying, you know, God, you're kind of annoying, and then God like literally shoots himself, <laughs> you know, just like sorry, literally shoots that guy, you know, uh, he just executes that guy on the spot, you know, and I mean that that's disturbing, right? Like suppose like everyone is laughing, you know, everyone is joking, you know, and like God is like suppose like telling someone like the truth you know how weak that person is you know god is telling that person hey you are weak you are this and i mean yeah it is true like god is the strongest person but like god constantly saying this these kinds of things to someone i mean generally people say these kinds of things even if it is the truth to like you know annoy someone you know <laughs> so and the person suppose like replies back you know you're kind of annoying to be honest and then god just like shoots that person so like everyone is laughing and then the scene just becomes seriously disturbing you know it's same with like eternal conscious torture by the way like it's like you you just said something really trivial to god perhaps in a joke or something and then like there are like these torturing 
you know, agents who just drag you to like eternal conscious torment. It's weird. And I mean, the thing right. is like, there's another argument, by the way, in favor of annihilationism and also in favor of eternal conscious torment. The argument is like, the way the argument is, is this. So God cannot help but punish you because it's like, it's just the way it is. God has to annihilate you. God has to punish you even though god does not want to punish you god does not want to uh, see you sad right but god has to do it because it's just like demands of uh, justice or demands of like morality like it's like a metaphysical necessity that things are this way you know so that is like a one argument that I that it's like they make God so helpless, right? Like God has to do it. It's not that God wants, you know, for you to suffer, but God has to do it, you know. It's just I mean, it's it sounds annoying, you know, when when the whole people when people bring up like God has to do it, it's like metaphysical necessity. And then I'm thinking like, no, it's obviously not. You have not given any reason to think why it is like some kind of a metaphysical necessity. And if it is a metaphysical necessity, then I mean, to be honest with you, atheism is much better than because if if God is like this kind of a person who is like metaphysically so like whose status is such that any thing, any trivial thing you say is like serious, infinitely serious. Then it's like walking on eggshells every day, being afraid every day, right? Even in heaven, being afraid that what if you just mess up? You know, what if you just like a little bit of anger, you just mess up a little. And God is like, oh, well, that's it for you, Mike. Hi. You know, and like it's so, it, it would be scary, you know, to live with someone who is like, uh, <clears throat> what do you call that? Uh, there is like a great word, you know, like a time bomb in some sense. Like, I think in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, whatever edition is the most uh, recent edition now, I want to say maybe fifth edition, DSM 5. Yeah. They have intermittent explosive disorder. <laughs> and that's the disorder where you have like, you have like, um, you know, anger management issues and like you just yeah. blow up like randomly yeah. or with very little provocation. I, I guess it was Ryan Mullins who explored the question of whether God meets the, the DSM criteria uh, for a psychopath on certain classical uh, conceptions um, of who God is, which I mean, for, obviously for a lot of people, this is this is impious. This is some questions you shouldn't even raise. But what I'll say in fairness to Ryan Mullins and to you is that people who who say it is it is impious or, or impious to question my um, conception of, of of who God is are people who are assuming that um, their conception is the way it has to be. Um, whereas you know it should be open to questioning whether their particular interpretation of scripture or their particular theological um, conception of God um, is indeed the correct one. It should be open to question um, through questions 
arguably like like you and, and Ryan Mullins uh, raise. Um, it's not something that should just be um, assumed rather than proven, or if it is assumed, um, perhaps one should not um, expect um, other people to hold your views with the same reverence as you yourself do, right? So, because if, you know, they're not everyone is gonna, gonna share your, your opinion. Um, so, I mean, maybe you just wanna be sensitive in general, because I mean, there is a certain way in fairness where one would not want to talk as um, recklessly um, about Allah uh, in, in Islam um, as one is allowed to talk about the Christian God. Um, because in general, Christians are very forgiving and permissive. And, and you know, even if they consider it impious, um, generally you're going to get a lot less pushback, let's, let's say, than if you were you know, saying things about, um, about Muslim uh, theology and Muslim conceptions of God. Um, so you know, let's, let's kind of bear that in mind. In some ways, it's, you know, you, know you, you, want, you want to maybe raise philosophical questions, but you don't want to just push it to the point where it is, um, uh, where it is just, just um, insensitive, right? So, yeah, yeah, know, right. I mean, it. yeah, yeah. I, I would also say, like, it's, it's like, you know, one one thing. So, have you like watched? Uh, have you have you watched Analytic Christian channel? He. He has like interviewed philosophers, and I think one. Who who is this? Uh, he's he he. I think he he's a Christian uh, who is. What is this channel called? Uh the 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 analytic Christian. Oh the the analytic Christian got it. Yeah. No, I actually have not seen that. Okay, so uh, he's an annihilationist, right? And I think he interviewed. I think uh, Eric Yang about how he interviewed it on like problem of hell and they did they, they did touch upon annihilationism too and the view is and the question and the talk was uh, about like what are some responses to the problem of hell right and like some of the defenses that they give it was more it, it sounded more like so like one view was that the people in hell will be like sometimes will be able to meet those in heaven sometimes <laughs> and, then, and i thought okay so i was like burnt alive for a long time and then i see you cal <laughs> and you ask me how you doing <laughs> How how have you been, Raja? You know? that, that would be an awkward conversation, but um, I don't know if you've ever read uh, C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, for example. Uh, I think Ryan talked to me about that. I have not read it, but Ryan talked to me about that. And he told me like in, in The Great Divorce, there's like a, a dude who is like, like people generally in hell have all the great stuff, you know, mansions, you know, and all the good stuff. But it's just that they are depressed and like stubborn, and the gates of heaven are locked from the inside. 
Right. And it, in a way, it's as if God punished them by giving them exactly what they wanted. And they have the ability to do anything they want and be gods of their own little private world. And they find as a result that they're entirely miserable, but still somehow not miserable enough to turn and repent. It's an interesting sort of line that C.S. Lewis chooses to walk in the great yeah. divorce. Um, but I think that those um, theists um, whom you uh, are referencing, uh, when you talk about um, some uh, Christians who imagine it possible for um, the denizens of hell to um, go on a day trip uh, to visit um, uh, the, the inhabitants of heaven, um, I think that those uh, Christian, uh, you know, speculative philosophers are thinking of a hell that is more like C.S. Lewis uh, hell in um, uh, The Great Divorce. Okay. Okay, cool. I mean, if that's the case, then people can people can go to heaven then. I mean, like if, if people find out like, yo, heaven is like so cool, man. Like it's so great there. People are happy there. They want to go, you know. <laughs> And uh, what what weird reason for the people have to like deny being with the people in heaven who are like enjoying themselves? Remember, uh, whatever great things in hell there are, you know, mansions, cars, Ferrari, and all that stuff. You know. Well, you know that that's funny because one almost imagines that the 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 money and the cars and the clothes to be um, features of, of hell rather than um, heaven. Were, weren't you bringing up um, The Good Place, um, that TV series um, yeah. uh, a little earlier? Yeah. And um, there, there's a place that appears to be heaven, um, yeah. but uh, the longer that they, they spend in it, the more they realize it's kind of tacky and awful. Um, and uh it's raising an interesting question of you know whether uh, uh, whether one's materialist desires, if fulfilled, um, could um, place one in uh, a condition um, at all resembling heaven, or whether that would just be another um, entry point into hell. And you know, for some theologians, amateur theologians like myself included, um, the reason why. Um, uh, the reason why God is the right choice and everything else is the wrong choice, money, um, lust, um, uh, you know, materialism, power, take your pick. The reason why God is the right choice and all these others are the wrong choice isn't simply that if you choose something that's not God, God is going to you know, uh, spank you because uh, God is jealous. You know, although, you know, sort of somewhat metaphorically and anthropomorphically, God is depicted as jealous in the, in the Hebrew Bible um, or the Old Testament. Um, but, you know, really the reason for, for a lot of theologians, the reason why it's wrong to choose something other than God is that anything other than God is going to leave you disappointed at some point. Mm. Um, and... Um, you know, it's interesting because, um, in, in other words, what I'm suggesting is that there's something intrinsically unsatisfying about uh, the endless pursuit of one's own beauty, wealth, fame, power, um, and, and so on. And and um, I was recently thinking about um, a, a friend's criticism um, of, of uh, one of my, uh, at this point, countless videos, um, where, you know, in effect, he was suggesting that I don't really have the 
the interpretive resources to make sense of those verses in the Bible that suggest that there is a time limit of sorts, that the day is coming when judgment will happen. And then after that, there will be nothing you can do. Um, and I was thinking that um, if one worships a false god, then the time must come um, uh, when you will be given over to the intrinsic consequences of uh, worshiping that false god or committing um, that kind of sin. In other words, the time must come when it must eventually disappoint you. Um, and you can either repent in this life or when you die, you will be you will be um, made to face again the intrinsic consequences of that of that false god or that sin pattern that you pursue. Um, and at that time, it may even be as in some near death experiences that if you call out and pray to God, you will not be heard and your prayers will not be answered. But I would suggest that's not because some final time limit has elapsed, but rather that a soul which is um, uh, that deeply embedded or enmeshed in sin um, is a soul that is no longer able to be honest with themselves. So they think that they are repenting and that they are truly, um, they've truly given up um, this this uh, this desire or this um, you no know, allegiance to to this uh, false god or to this pattern of sin. However, if you let them free, they would go right back into it. And they would still be suffering from the same spiritual malady. So I would suggest that it is God's compassion which prevents him from um, acting on their prayers because he must continue the operation, to use that metaphor, and wield the scalpel until the tumor has been excised. And that way you can hold um, these, these passages which warn of, of portending doom um, or impending doom, as in, say, the, the book of Jude and countless other places, you can hold them together with verses um, that say things like, you know, in that day, um, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I think you can have them together. And I think the difference is, is false repentance versus true repentance. But with the understanding that one who is um, whose eyes are blinded by sin may think himself to be sincerely repenting when he actually isn't because he's been that dishonest with himself, you know, throughout his life. And um, uh, the book, uh, or excuse me, uh, in, in the Gospel of Luke, um, there's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And um, it's basically the story, if you haven't heard it, um, of a rich man who is always flaunting his wealth and not being compassionate to the, the leper, Lazarus, you know, he has a skin disease and he's totally poor and he's starving to death and the rich man does nothing to help him. Um, but when Lazarus dies, Lazarus finds himself in the bosom of Abraham, which is a nice place to be. Um, it, it's kind of like almost um, it's like almost like the underworld. It's like a shadowy afterlife, but it's like a nice version of that. And the, the rich man, when he dies, he goes to Hades, which is the bad version of um, the underworld afterlife until the final judgment um and um lazarus says oh if i had known that this was going to, excuse me the rich man says if i had known that this was going to happen to me i would surely have you know altered my ways um let me tell uh let me tell lazarus to come down here and give me a drink let Lazarus come down here and give me a drink of water, yeah. basically, to cool my tongue because it's burning. And so in that way, he shows that he hasn't really repented of the way he treated Lazarus. 
Um, yeah. He's repenting. Yeah. He's only suffering because what he wants is out of his reach now. Um, and um, he tells, he, he says... Um, Meeting uh, is going to end within a minute. So Okay. Well, that, let's, let's cap the recording off and then uh, pick up uh, another... Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll send another link. So we're trying to do things on the cheap and um, uh, avoid having to pay for Zoom Pro by just uh, doing multiple consecutive Zoom meetings. Um, I was saying at the end of our last um, uh, Zoom recording um, that in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, we have indications, I would argue, that the reason why Lazarus is not allowed to um, escape his condition of um, afterlife torment, despite appearing to repent, is that um, Lazarus, excuse me, not Lazarus, but the rich man, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Uh, the rich man um, has, uh, there, there are indications that his repentance is insincere. And when he asks that Lazarus be um, permitted to come down and give him a drink of water, um, he's told, and that, that shows right away that he's not, uh, sorry for the way he treated Lazarus and still sees Lazarus as his servant or slave. Um, um, at that point, the rich man is informed that there is a chasm separating him and Lazarus so that um, the rich man can't cross over to the other side um, to escape, nor could anyone compassionate on um, Lazarus and um, uh, successfully travel down to where the rich man is, because that's just um, how things um are and um i i the question that bradley jerzak raises in um in um her gates will never be shut is whether things will remain that way till the end of time or whether the chasm will be bridged um at or after the final judgment um as far as jerzak is concerned um uh, the the, the question is open, although for a lot of Christians who deny the possibility of postmortem repentance, they would say that um, uh, not only in the immediate afterlife, but also in the final judgment, there will never, ever be um, an opportunity to repent. And, you know, that would fit together with the NDEs that say that um, I was in hell and there were so many people praying and, and God didn't hear them and I prayed and God didn't hear me. Um, um, which experience are interestingly which experiences are interestingly belied or undercut by the very fact that in in the the experience having been a near-death experience they are seemingly permitted to come back um and tell us about what they experienced and thereby to to escape um hell so it, it it's um it's obviously it's 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 a tricky question it's complicated i'm not claiming to know how it all works um, I have suspicions. Uh, you know, I, I tend to trust deeply in, in the, the mercy and the justice of God and to imagine that God's justice and mercy are not opposed to each other. Um, um, that there is um, a simplicity to the divine nature, um, if a non-simple sort, um, about which perhaps I could say more at another time, but that there is no internal opposition in God between his justice and his mercy, that his mercy, you know, to, to, to paraphrase George MacDonald, his, his mercy is altogether just and his justice is altogether merciful. Um, he punishes us for the same reason that if our, if our own children were doing something as immoral as uh, uh, 
you know, George Saris gives the example, or Thomas Talbot, one of the two, gives the example of what he as a father would do if he discovered that his adult son was swindling um, elderly women out of their uh, pension checks. Um, he would be bound, he would be forced to punish his son, uh, not in spite of the fact that he loves his son, but because he loves his son and can't, and can't allow his son to do such damage to his own soul doing something as terrible as as um uh swindling elderly women out of their out of their social security money so um uh you know these these are complicated issues but those are some of the thoughts that i have um in regard to that that whole question of postmortem repentance and a, and a final time limit yeah i mean you went from cars money and all that stuff to postmortem repentance so that was great and long, I suppose. I mean, it was, it was, but it was, I would say, in my own defense, it was relevant because you were talking about the possibility of whether someone could ever change their mind in hell and, and go over to heaven or not. Yeah. And if not, yeah, why not? yeah. I mean, the thing is, I suppose I do have disagreements with you on like cars, video games in heaven, and like hell and stuff like to me hell is a punishment place i i'm not i'm not um flat out denying the possibility that those things could be in heaven i'm not saying that in yeah. principle they could yeah i be mean there. yeah they, they could they could be be there someone some pastor once said that um you know whatever needs to be in heaven uh, for it uh, to be heaven uh, for you will be there um if you go there so, you know, I'm not against that possibility in principle. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah. the, the, personally, I think, like, there are a lot of things that we value, right? Like creativity, beauty, and all that stuff. And when we think about, like, high art, right? Critically acclaimed art, important pieces of artwork, artworks. Now, I think then they should be there, right? I, I, they should be. Uh, 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 like, if, I think God would value our creations, right? In, in the sense that, like, we are not harming someone with those creations. You know, we are not, like, making some kind of a Nazi propaganda movie, you know, <laughs> or something like that, right? So, and some of the activities that people do, I think most of the hobbies people have, sports people take part, participate in, or like the, the places that people want to be, the things that people want to do are innocuous, you know, like some people like mountain hiking, right? Some people like video games, some people like, you know, car racing, Right, some people like rally racing, you know, F1, Formula One, you know, that's fun to see, you know. So it's just a lot of fun things. And I mean, when we are here, right, and when we value all these things, for God to just say, you will not get any of this in heaven, but you know, it's like the the atmosphere is such that it's like the best drug out there. It's like being on heroin that never ends 
you know, the, a heroine shot that never ends. So you will never do anything. You will just be like this, you know, uh, like how they, the meditative state, you know, kind of just closing. Yeah, up. yeah. Or or if it's all just harps and, um, uh, you know, playing, playing harps on clouds. And I mean, I think you're getting at something interesting, which is yeah. whether heaven is not actually something nearer to our current experience than we tend to imagine. And yeah. I don't know, you know, William Blake imagined that there might even be a divine sorrow in heaven. Um, sorrow, that there would be ups and downs, there would be emotional ups and downs, but one's yeah. attitude toward those those um, emotions, even the negative ones, would itself be positive. So that even though one, it's kind of like coming to the end of a really good book, and you're really sad, but at the same time, you wouldn't, you don't wish that you hadn't read the book or, or, or hadn't finished it. Yeah. It's like, so there's this like, interesting stuff there. It's like watching a sad movie or sometimes a horror movie, right? Or a disturbing movie. And uh, also another thing about hell, important thing. Guilt and sadness is something that is important for repentance. Guilt, sadness, and remorse. If the person is a literal psychopath, does not you know, have like just those like working faculty to even feel sadness. Like I have a friend, I mean, he's not, he's not a psychopath or anything. I have a friend, he had, he was, he was, he was diagnosed with some kind of mental illness such that he does not feel any compassion. Like mm. He does feel, he, he does feel some love in the sense that when he is in like a romantic relationship, he is not uh, pessimistic, you know. When he is with someone, uh, yeah, when he is in some romantic relationship, he does not feel the pessimism. So, like, I still ask him, like, okay, I mean, so, like, I think at one point I asked, like his mother passed away and I asked him, you would be so really sad about that. And he, he, he said like, he did not feel much sadness, right? Like he, he did feel like, okay, there's some loss, but then I need to get back to work or something. I mean, it's, it's weird. And like he, he did. He I, I would say that sometimes it's possible to have emotions, but not feel them. That is, the, the body and brain may be in a certain emotional state of which the higher brain regions, such as the prefrontal cortex, which we, for whatever reason, normally associate with consciousness, um, um, you know, there may be emotional states in the brain and body that are not registered by the higher brain regions, such as the prefrontal cortex. And in those cases, one might say that someone has emotions, but not feelings. I mean, he, he, um, he does not... He also does not care about animals. So, like, uh, he, I think, said that if a dog was being literally tortured, a puppy was being literally tortured, he wouldn't care. He wouldn't care to stop the person or tell the person to stop torturing that and, puppy, that kitten. And, yeah, that, that kind of um, um, uh, lack of so-called affective empathy can occur in a number of different um, psychiatric conditions. Yeah. There's also the condition known as alexithymia, which is sort of the inability to read one's own emotions, which is similar, I think, to what I 
mentioned earlier. There's also depersonalization and derealization, um, which can lead to the sense that one does not actually have any feelings or that oneself is not even real. Yes. Um, um, but um, um, I suppose this, this relates to the question of whether um, uh, states, emotional states other than, than uh, happiness or possible in heaven, um, you know that's it's kind of it's kind of an interesting kind of an interesting question because I would almost tend to think that you need negative states in order for positive states to be positive because kind of like what Wittgenstein meant when he said if yeah. you don't have a concept of wrong you can't talk about right. However, when people have near death experiences, they do tend to say that the positive ones are entirely positive and that in the place that they go there is no mention or memory of, of of sadness or suffering and so it's very um in that sense it's very intriguing because um i at least don't think that i have the conceptual resources to understand that if that is indeed the case yeah i mean there's a, a like in judaism by the way i think from one of the i think one of the rabbi i heard that in hell, people feel immense guilt and immense sadness. You know, they are not like, I have like Mercedes Benz out there. I have this great mansion with me and you know, that video game out there, but I have no friends, so I'm sad. But I'm Here in my garage, people. I just got this new Lamborghini. <laughs> but you know what I love even more than Lamborghinis? <laughs> not knowledge, because I'm in hell. Okay, anyway, let's start yeah that's an interesting meme <laughs> so like I no, had... but you were talking about a, a rabbinic conception of hell i wasn't trying to derail you i was just trying to make a kind of actually lame joke but yeah I... um, you're talking about a, a kind of a jewish conception of hell where it's there's nothing there's nothing tricky or counterintuitive about it it's not the c.s lewis version of hell this is just straightforward hell like it sucks yeah. it's awful yeah, it's awful, you know. I mean, it's it's not as awful as, like, you're literally being tortured, like, taken apart, eaten alive, or, like, burned or impaled. Like, not, like, horrific, extremely horrific stuff. It's more like a, a prison facility, I suppose, and great sadness, you know, in that. You still go on, you know, it lasts for some time based on depending on how much suffering you caused, I suppose. And then, yeah, you are released. You are, you, you unite with your friend's family, you know, after you successfully serve your sentence, you know, I think that makes sense, right? Like, I, I don't think I would want Hitler to get like PlayStation 5 in hell. <laughs> right for, for whatever reason there's a birth in isaiah um that the the rabbi akiva um who was i think he was i think he lived shortly after jesus i think in fact that rabbi akiva not that i'm in any way a scholar of these things um, but rabbi akiva um uh was around during the the Jewish rebellion against the Roman Empire, the so-called uh, Bar Kokhba uh, rebellion, and he, Rabbi Akiva, proclaimed that uh, Simon Bar Kokhba was the the Messiah, um, and that um, he would be able to lead the Jewish people to victory against Roman occupation. And uh, 
uh, that uprising failed, and as a result, Rabbi Akiva was uh, tortured to death in an, ex in an extremely gruesome way. But um, he had an interpretation of a verse in Isaiah, which I think has sort of become standard um, in the in the kind of rabbinic Judaism that um, descended from the kind of Pharisaic tradition of which Rabbi Akiva was a part, and which you know Jesus argues with in the Bible, uh, while also interestingly probably being part of that tradition from a standpoint of like um, historical scholarship. But anyway, Rabbi Akiva had this, this interpretation um, where um, those who suffer in the place where the worm doesn't die, they suffer for uh, no more than 12 months. So he had this understanding um, that, that um, uh, I, I think he had the understanding that at least um, unrighteous Jews, they suffer for 12 months and then they are allowed into heaven. Now, whether some rabbis, uh, Akiva himself included, I don't know, believe that for the especially wicked, let's imagine some especially wicked Gentiles, such as, you know, the the um, uh, the, the, the Seleucid emperor who he, um, he set up the abomination of desolation inside the Jewish temple. He put up a statue of Zeus and he forced the Jews to slaughter pigs and, 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 um, uh um sacrifice you know make make pig sacrifices in front of the in front of the statue uh for certain uh uh for certain rabbis you know would would an especially wicked gentile like that or hitler for that matter um be annihilated after the period of 12 months um perhaps but see then that kind of falls into some of the questions i was raising um earlier with regard yeah. to um yeah, the 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 sort of the, the just apportionment of retributive penalties yeah. and sort of whether it's even possible in principle to have that kind of balance between, okay, you have this finite amount of conscious punishment and this infinite amount of non-existence. And is there some sort of principled basis where you can hold those two together or does it rest on some moral intuition which is never actually made clear? Yeah. Um, in which case, you know, maybe that's a problem. But of course, yeah, anyway, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the thing is with, I dislike C.S. Lewis's view of hell personally. I mean, of course I dislike, <laughs> dislike that horror, horrific, retributive kind of hell too. But I mean, C.S. Lewis's view of hell sort of, it's, I dislike it from a different place you know, from a different angle, I suppose, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's obviously sounds to me like you're literally diluting hell to make it palatable for yourself. It just sounds to me like that, because I mean, look, it does not sound to me like a punishment if some dude who like massacred people committed mass genocide, and like, horribly tortured people is going to like get PlayStation 5, and then a Mercedes Benz, but he's like, oh, I'm sad and alone. I mean, no, he will, he will at least suffer for some time, right? And then he will be after after he after he suffers his sentence, you know, serves well. Again, I'm not like saying that he deserves to be tortured, like horrible kind of torture or anything. But my view is generally that. I mean, hell is a place for suffering and for a specific kind of suffering, not just like weird, li weird, 
strange. I'm just sad. Like, you know, have you watched Bojack Horseman? Like it's uh, I, I I have it, but it, it is kind of making me think of like um this uh, what it what it what a poet described as a grief without a pang, a drowsy, stifled, unimpassioned grief. Like I'm kind of sad and uncomfortable, but I don't know why, and I'm kind of just trying to distract myself from it. It is like kind of that Bo Bojack Horseman, uh, clinical depression nihilism kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I will say that for for what it's worth, I'm with you, Roger. Like, um, I think that hell, whether it's whether it's a a, a punishment that God Himself is uh, meeting out, or whether it's actually just Him abandoning people to the intrinsic consequences of their own sin. Um, I think hell is a place where um, it's so terrible, whether it's endless in the sense that you and I understand in our experience of time, um, it, it is so terrible that you want to avoid going there at any cost. Um, and it's more terrible than anything you can imagine. It's by definition the worst place that you could go. Um, yeah. and, and, and I think that um, it, it is a place which most definitely exists exists um you know in in, in or it, it's very much it's it's an experience which uh one most definitely can have and it's it's every bit as terrifying if not more you know as it has been portrayed that's kind of my own sense yeah that's that's the thing and i mean it, uh, like emerson green green emerson green said like how c.s lewis view sounds like someone is like someone finds the Augustinian, you know, horrific torture view of hell, obviously unpalatable, and they are trying to cope in some sense by like imagining this kind of uh, sort of a liberal view of eternal hell. It is still eternal, by the way, according to Lewis, right? Gates of heaven are locked from the inside and they are forever locked for some weird reason. And I think you know, I also talked to like Arjuna Gallagher. I don't know if you know his channel. His channel is called Theology. And I, I do know his channel. And then he and I have a lot in common. You got, you got the Hare Krishna first name and yeah. you got the Western last name. He and I are not so different. Yeah. Yeah. And he he, he talked about like Jerry Walls. And I think Jerry Walls' view of hell is similar to C.S. Lewis, where he Jerry Walls thinks that hell is a kind of a, like God allows you to have your uh, perverse pleasure or something, but you're still sad or really sad or something. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's it's weird, strange. Like, I, I don't get it. I just don't get it. Like, that's the only thing. It's, it's because they want to be able to say that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. And there is something about, uh, choosing away from God, something about choosing, um, uh, um, make something about making a decision um, uh, for something other than God, which can actually um, allow you to have some kind of fulfillment, even over the longest of time frames. But for me, that notion doesn't compute because um, there is no life or satisfaction of any kind uh, apart from God, at least nothing that could bear description as eternal. And, yeah. if, and if conversely, some illusion or some false value could keep you going forever, 
then it wouldn't even be possible to distinguish that from the truth because only the truth and only the highest value of divine love yeah. and, and, and enacting that yourself, only that lasts forever and only that satisfies you forever. Um, yeah. And that's I mean, why the truth is true. And that's why the good is good. Not just because God says it is. And if you don't agree with him, he punishes you. It doesn't work like that. Yeah, I mean, it's like, if you if you can enjoy i mean okay so so david david bentley hart the the way david bentley hart imagines i think eternal hell it's not cs lewis kind of hell as he like talks about if you could rather eat shards of glass versus like you know the most delicious food right and even if we acknowledge that C.S. Lewis's view of hell is right, I would still think that, okay, look, the place where God lives, it it will have like the highest human development indexes ever. It will literally have like a positive infinity of human development index. And you are literally choosing a place where human development index is like very low, right? Do do you do you, uh, uh, I I I do I do understand what you're getting at. Um, do you mind if we wrap up soon? Because I've just I'm I'm just now hearing my my uh, my young son uh, wake up from his nap and he's kind of tantruming. So I at, at this point um I I I think I do need to run and I'm sorry to end on such an abrupt note. Oh, oh, it's no problem. Uh, it was great. Just to say, yeah, yeah, we should we the... should do this again um, next week or sometime yeah. soon. Let me stop the recording. I just have one question after we stop yeah. the recording.